Ever wonder what psychologist moms talk about when we get together? Whether we're consulting one another about a challenging case or one of our own kids, or just leaning on each other when parenting feels hard, because trust me, even when we do this for a living, it's still hard. Joining me each week in these special Thursday shows are two of my closest friends, both moms, both psychologists. They're the people I call when I need a sounding board. These are our unfiltered answers to your parenting questions. We're letting you in on the conversations the three of us usually have behind closed doors. This is Securely Attached, Beyond the Sessions. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back, Rebecca and Emily. So glad you're here. Um, Today, we're going to answer a question from a listener named Brendan Brendan writes in, it seems obvious that people with ADD need certain accommodations, but how do you balance that with a child's desire to not be, quote, different and not wanting the extra attention at school? When I was diagnosed, I just didn't want any of the extra help. And even in law school, I refused the extra time on exams and the bar because I wanted to prove to myself that I didn't need that. My son hasn't been diagnosed or anything yet. He's still really young, but I'm seeing some things that make me wonder if he has it too. Is there anything I can do to support him from an early age so he doesn't feel like he can't accept help? It's a really good question. Great question. Phenomenal question. Yeah. And I appreciate too you sharing kind of your experience because I think, you know, we talk about this a lot when we talk about answering stuff about parenting and kids is like, we have to take into account our own experiences because that always gets infused with anything we're trying to figure out with our kids. And so recognizing, this parent recognizing that they themselves struggled with this, with answering this question in their own lives is going to make it so that they're going to have so much more awareness of what's their stuff and what's their kid's stuff when they're trying to figure out how to answer this question on behalf of their child. So I think that's just great. And I wanted to point that out. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the overarching positive things is that I think generationally our kids are growing up in a time that for the most part, obviously with some exceptions, is generally more accepting of differences. Um, and, and I think a lot of schools do a better job than when we were growing up at talking about how different brains work differently and different kinds of wiring. And so that generally my hope would be that across the board, there's less stigma that your son would need to face than potentially what you sensed you might potentially face if you owned up to having a difference. Um, And so I think often, at least if you're me, you think about all the different ways that the world is horrible now. (laughs) But this is one, I think, that um, we've actually been moving kind of in the right direction. And there's much more understanding, especially on the part of teachers and, and, you know, educational curriculums at recognizing those differences, not as deficits per se, but as differences and that different people learn differently and need different things. And, you know, to my mind, that's the first step in parenting when you think your child might have some of this stuff coming down the pike or even just generally is using that kind of language that embraces differences and that points out how different people 
do things differently, whether it's, um, you know, a puzzle or running or, you know, look how this person runs compared to that person runs and this person's tall and this person's short. And certainly that's all the um, language that's suggested in like anti-racism education for young kids. It's just the first step is pointing out differences using a tone and an energy that's really positive and accepting and inclusive as opposed to, you know, here's what's normal and here's what's not normal and therefore bad. Yeah. And I'd say like, I think to take that, to add on to that, Rebecca, I think like for the view, for this person's question, to address this person's question, I I love also being really collaborative with these schools. I think to your point, they're much more open now, the school setting, the teachers to parent collaboration and even with the child. Right. So I actually have this child now, like I have a kid, one of my kids is a very, not wanting to be different, not wanting to accept any help in a different way. And I think it's really about collaborative problem solving with the teacher, with your kid, and really trying to figure out, all right, so this is the thing we're trying to address. Like, what do you think about how we should do that in the classroom? Or how do you feel most comfortable getting support in that way? And sort of doing a little bit of that problem solving as a team approach, I think is really important as a way to sort of bridge that and make it less stigmatizing. Yeah. No, I think that that's a really good point. Like once your child gets to that place where perhaps they have had a diagnosis and there are accommodations that are going to be appropriate for them to have in a school setting, how they can be delivered in a way that feels, one, not frustrating or embarrassing or overwhelming to that child, but also that have their input. Because we know when kids are part of the conversation, they're more likely to engage in the, the, the process, the, the receiving the help and the following the plan. And there's just generally not no resistance, but less um, because they have some ownership and agency in, in the whole c- creation of the plan. I think too, like this piece about, you know, I think there's how do we support kids who are actively dealing with it because it's happening. And this piece of like, how do we start from the get-go? Like way before, like, you know, we know things like ADHD or anxiety are, they're genetically preloaded a little bit, like whether or not they will materialize is not necessarily guaranteed and has other factors that can contribute to that. But if you are a person who has ADHD and had it since childhood, it's possible there's a greater chance that your child could then have it. Um, If you've struggled with anxiety, especially if you've had it ever since you were a little kid, there's a greater chance your child is going to experience, have a higher, higher rate of experiencing an anxiety disorder. That's not to like scare parents or create a bias in seeing something that may not be there just because they have it. But you can sort of know like, okay, I've got these vulnerabilities in my life, these differences in the way that I show up in the world. How can I become more aware of them in myself so that I can think about what's helped me, what I didn't, what help I didn't get that I wish I had had and use that to kind of inform some of the ways that we parent? Absolutely. I mean, I think I talk all the time, both with parents as well as with teachers about how it's not an even playing field and knowing your genetic history is really important when it's possible. It's not always possible. Um, Mm -hmm. but when you have an understanding of your child's 
genetics loading, genetic loadings, again, so long as you recognize it's a delicate instrument and not a blunt instrument, it doesn't mean anything is written in stone, um, but it can empower you to make different choices. So let's say a child whose parents both have anxiety disorders, I might recommend intervening earlier than I might if I saw the exact same behaviors and presentation in a child whose parents didn't have um, an anxiety disorder. Because again, if you look at the numbers and rates and likelihood, there's just different reasons to intervene. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, the tone of this listener's question, I think is a really healthy one because it seems like they're saying, um, you know, I know this might be coming down the pike for my child. What can I do proactively to help them, assuming they do need to cope with this and not necessarily a tone of panic or a tone of this is definitely happening and how do I stop it, right? It's just mm-hmm. sort of like accepting that this may be their child's path and hoping that they can kind of make their child's path perhaps a little bit easier than theirs was. And that's a really noble goal that we all have for our kids. I always say, I say this a lot when when I'm helping parents um, with these things. It's really helpful in my mind to say, I'm the type of person who, right, Mm. needs to run around before I sit down and do a lot of work. I'm the type of person who listens better if I, you know, get my wiggles out. Or I'm the type of person who likes to do a really self-soothing, like deep breathing before a big test, right? If you just put in front of it, I'm the type of person who, we don't judge that, right? Like it's, it's just, I figured out how to address my thing. And I think Mm -hmm. if we could frame it that way for kids and even as parents, that that really is a helpful tool in in figuring out how to accept our differences and then figure out ways that they can be best modulated within our current lifestyles, you know. And what I love about that is that by saying I'm the type of person who, the implication is that there are many types of people like that. It's not like I'm the only person in the world who, (laughs) you know, it's it's, I am part of a community of people who I just, I have to share. We had the most beautiful experience last night. Um, I took my seven-year-old who definitely has some of this stuff to a restaurant and my husband and my other son were meeting us there and we walked in and it was really loud and we sat down and he just looked overwhelmed and he said, I don't know that I, you know, I don't know that I want to stay. It's really loud. And I said, I know. And then the server came over to, to take our orders. And I said, well, just give us a second because I don't know that my son wants to say he's feeling a little bit overwhelmed, like I said, in a very normalizing way. And the server looked at him and was like, I completely get that. Mm-hmm. I'm that kind of person too. When I walk into a place that's too loud, here's what I do. I close my eyes and I take a deep breath. And if I can hear my breath, then I know I'm okay. And like my son did it. And then my son was like, it didn't really work, which is great. Cause I love that it's like real life and not a movie, but yeah. it was still the most like beautiful, like, like connectedness and kind of, you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And we are you like, there are people like you quote unquote everywhere. Um, right. which again is just such to this person's question in a sense. Yeah, that gives like radical acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the type of person who also imbues confidence. Like there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just the type of person who does this, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't create a stigma around that. You know, it it almost creates a confidence around that, which is sort of the other piece that I like about that. Yeah. 
God, that server is like, uh, what an attuned server. Like how amazing. We ended up staying, but of course leaving earlier. And we had two cars because as I said, we were coming separately. So me and this son left earlier so he could go home and go to bed. And I'm like, to my husband, I'm like, you weren't here for this, but please give him a very large tip. (laughs) I love it. When I say that we love him. (laughs) (laughs) That is, I mean, that's, but that's really meaningful. Like, obviously there's a difference and kids know this difference, right? It's a, there's a difference when your parent is saying something Mm -hmm. that's helping you to feel seen and understood and validated. That's very important, critical. And it is, you know, it feels very good. But when a total stranger can come and do that too, that's a whole nother level of like, the world is safe. He like, also had a Scottish yeah. brogue. I was like, it sounds better when he talks about it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. I love that. I think that that reminds me, like, I also think, Sarah, that that's, it's really helpful also when it comes from another kid, you oh, know, yeah. like we were, I was just had an anecdote of going to a well visit with one of my kids and, and a kid walking in had just had a shot and said to the kid, I figured out a strategy, curl your toes when you're getting the shot, you know, like giving out tips on the way in mm-hmm. and it was like, it, you know, let's see if it works. You know, like, I think that my kid would never have done that. If the, even the doctor or myself had said it to them, he, that kid gave it a try because another child, you know, gave them a tip. And yeah. I think that that's, that's that, like, I'm the type of person who doesn't love shots. So this is what I do when I have to go in and get my shot, you know? Yeah. Like, and I think that says a lot too of like, You know, it's not always, it's pretty universal for kids to share that fear of shots. So they may all be able to commiserate together and obviously got to be a pretty, um, you know, aware and articulate kid to be able to name that for another kid. But I think sometimes with things like ADHD um, or another, you know, I have some kids that I work with who a lot of them have OCD and they feel like they're the only kid they know who has OCD. That's not actually true. And we've done a lot of work in helping them to like recognize that people don't wear things like OCD on their, you know, as on their sleeve necessarily. So you might not know that other kids in your class or your grade are dealing with it. But I think it speaks to this other piece, especially for like slightly older kids who do have an actual diagnosis at this point is for us to create opportunities for them to have access to peer support, you know, whether it's group therapy or just a some type of group resource that's allows them to see they're not the only kid that's dealing with this because it's hard when you don't know that you're not the only person that's going through it. And so then like for example, if you're the only kid in your class who's getting offered some type of accommodation for a test or um, getting pulled out to do OT or, you know, whatever has a special, some special tools in the classroom to help them regulate. It can be hard for kids to tolerate that, that, and then that prevents them from wanting to use the accommodations. And so, um, you know, what do you feel like are some of the ways that we can help support a kid who feels like they're the only kid in the class who's got these supports to, to, you know, we can do this stuff at home, but like in the moment when they're the only one who appears to be needing these supports, how do we help kind of on at that level? You know, 
One of the analogies I often use because ADHD or OCD are kind of these hidden, you know, disabilities or characteristics. And so I often try to compare it to a physical um, disability or difference. And I talk about, you know, if a child had a broken leg and I don't say like had a broken leg forever, you know, it's not necessarily a child who has a disorder whereby they're forever in a wheelchair, but just at this moment in time, let's say this child has a broken leg And if the child kept saying to themselves, like, no, I am going to walk up the stairs. I am going to walk up the stairs. Like, I'm not going to use the wheelchair. I'm not going to use the elevator. Like what, what would happen, you know? Um, And what, and what would that A, be effective for that person? Um, How might other people respond? And they're often able to see that their peers or other adults would say to that person, like, oh my gosh, please use the elevator, like use a wheelchair. You you're let you're gonna hurt your leg more. You know, like they're really able to come up with compassionate language and kind of giving and generous language when it's physical. And so then that can help say, like, I wonder if if people knew that your brain is kind of going through something right now or sort of has some differences that require extra support. I wonder if that's actually how everybody would feel if they understood it, you know, and that often, not always, but often is kind of a a metaphor or an analogy that can help, that can help because I think kids assume immediately like, well, everyone would make fun of me if they actually knew or, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone, like people wouldn't, would think I was doing it on purpose or like that I was just doing it. Like I had a kid who needed to chew gum for a sensory thing. Like they think I'm just doing it to get the gum. It's like, well, but what if, again, like, would you think that the person in the cast was like, just lazy and didn't want to walk up the stairs. It's like, no, you would see the cat, you know, and they're able to see that generosity of spirit and then trust more in perhaps some of the good intentions of their classmates. I agree. I think like building what we call reflective functioning or imagining what the other person is thinking and feeling is exactly that. I, I use, you know, a lot of um, analogies around you know, if so-and-so had to leave for extra reading help, like, do you think worse of them? Like, do you think they're terrible? And, and often kids are, are much more generous, you know, than we would anticipate. They're often like, no, they're my friend. I play with them at Reese. Like, it's not a big deal. And so I think sort of, again, back full circle back to Rebecca, your point, like noting differences and taking stigma away from them and helping imagine what the other person is thinking and feeling is a really helpful way to open up, you know, willingness to try new things, including services or help um, supports or accommodations. That makes so much sense. Um, I, I keep going back to, to this idea of like, as parents, what we model, not just what we say in like modeling, talking about differences, but like what we model, I mean, in this example, the parent has the same thing that the child has. So you get this rich opportunity to model coping with this thing in vivo all the time. Like in full disclosure, I am a parent with ADHD and my kids are curious about like when I, I don't know if either of my kids will have it, but it's totally possible they will. Um, It definitely runs in my family, but my you know, I, I recently started taking medication for it and my kids see me take it and they want to know why. And I sort of start to explain like my brain works a little differently than other people's brains. And so this helps me to focus better and to remember what I'm trying to do. And 
that's kind of it. Like it's not a, well, I have this condition and so I have to take this medication because I'm sick, right? You know, we we have these little opportunities, these little tiny moments to just sort of like drop breadcrumbs along the way to like viewing this as a non-issue, a difference in how our brains work, something that can I consider it a superpower. Um, and I talk about it a lot of times in that language. I'm like, you know, I take this medicine because my brain works a little differently. It helps me to focus better. But my brain works in a way that allows me to do all kinds of other things that's kind of special, right? And so I think that that is also a big thing is like framing all of whatever the difference is as our as a strength in some ways or as just like a neutral thing too. And, and what I hear you saying is also like modeling by talking about your process, right? You might say, oh, I'm going to put my keys right here in this bowl by the door because ugh, I, I always forget if I take them inside the house. Like you're narrating a little bit the modeling of how you do accommodations mm-hmm. for your own self. And I think that that you, maybe you can apply that to an academic setting. You can apply that to a home setting. There's a lot of ways that you can narrate your own process as a parent that helps it's sort of like that inside to Rebecca's point, that sort of like inside secret things that like nobody knows that you have this system that you've had to do because it really, really helps you. And by sharing that in that process with your kids, that can be really illustrative. Yeah. And you can do it even if you're taking like a blood pressure medication, right? Cause again, it's about how we think about these things. <laughs> Why are you taking this blood pressure medication? It's not, Oh, because I have this condition and I'm unhealthy. It's well, here's something about my body that's different than some people's bodies. And so I need to take this medicine or I need to watch a little bit more what I eat. Like certainly this is language around, you know, food allergies. It's just this idea of we can drop the breadcrumbs, as you said, around differences and different people's bodies and brains being different, even about a range of different things so that that's just the the framework that they see the world in. They're not going to see someone take a pill at some point and be like, oh, I wonder what's wrong with them. They're going to see someone take a pill and be like, oh, I wonder what's different about that. Yeah. And one other thing that that made me think of is like a lot of times we we all do this. We have shorthand for things, right? Oh, well, I take this medicine because I have ADHD or I take this medicine because I have OCD or I take this medicine because I have high blood pressure. Kids don't know what those those labels mean. And so instead of using the reason why we do something as, you know, in the shorthand, actually explaining the process that 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 accommodation or that medication or that whatever intervention it is we're kind of engaging in allows us to change. So I'm not saying I take medicine because I have ADHD. I'm saying I have medicine because my brain works a little different. And sometimes it's hard for me to like know what to focus on. And this helps me. Versus, or like I take this medication because sometimes my brain has a hard time filtering out what's a worry and what's a thought I can just let go of. So we're naming the process that the medication or the intervention helps us accomplish rather than I'm taking this because of this thing that doesn't really mean anything. And for yeah. little kids, I think that's especially helpful because that's going to sort of prime them for thinking about things in terms of process rather than like just a sort of meaningless shorthand that we then use to like make quicker judgments. 
or also moves it out of a, like a deficit model, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you say t- you're taking your focus medicine, then you're taking medicine that helps you focus. You're not saying I'm taking my attention deficit medicine, right? Yeah. It's a very different um, feel. I think. Totally. And then I think there's also, there's other thing this person said in this question, like for the, from their experience where they're like, they refused extra time because they wanted to prove to themselves they didn't need it. And I think that's another thing that like, perhaps we could understand it as like a byproduct of all this earlier stuff we're talking about not being there, right? Like if I think of getting accommodations or getting help or taking a medicine as a sign that I'm sort of cheating or getting a quick win or, you know, you know, not showing up to my full potential or a sign that I'm kind of like, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. It probably is worth examining. And I'm saying this is probably as a parent, less the kid, because I don't think the kid's going to have as much conscious awareness of that process. It's probably just going to look like resistance and they might not be having like those conscious thoughts. But as a parent, if you're noticing that, right, there's probably a good chance that there's some internalized shame around needing help and to kind of maybe unpack that a little bit so that we're not infusing any of the of the these other pieces with shame for our kids inadvertently. Right. And I'm not saying that we're going to shame our kids. I'm thinking we might model for our kids inadvertently our own shame around needing help. Right. So that would be something to be mindful of. Like if I'm offered help, do I, am I quick to say, I don't need help. I could do this all by myself. Or am I going to model for, you know, model in front of my kid? You know, sometimes I need help too. And that's hard for me to, to accept, but I know sometimes it's worth it in the long run. So a little bit of like self-reflection on kind of what we hold in terms of our maybe conscious or unconscious beliefs around our own need for help and accommodations and things like that. Sarah, that's so interesting. And I totally agree. I think the other angle that's possibly interesting here, because I also noticed that part in the listener's question that almost had this competitive edge to it, like he felt like he didn't need, you know, he was going to show people that he didn't need these things, is that actually sometimes people with ADHD need a task, particularly a challenging task to feel competitive in order to kind of stay um, aroused and engaged enough to do it and to do it well. And so it's possible that by saying, you know, I don't need help, I'm going to show you people or, you know, whatever else we're implying or inferring, I should say, um, that was a compensatory strategy for being able to get the work done more effectively. And so when our kids potentially with ADHD use that kind of language, well, I don't need the help or I don't need this to perhaps frame that for them as a really awesome strength they have. Like we, you know, it's so great the way that you can turn this in some ways into a challenge and kind of look at other people. And it's almost like a race. And that's really helpful in terms of the energy it gives you. And I wonder if there's a way to somehow maintain that energy and also accept that your brain works a little bit differently and could benefit, you know, so you're kind of able to hold both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And I, and I do think there is some research that shows that people with ADHD really can have very good executive functioning or good approach or their brains can really work equal to, or if not superior to others in some ways when they are challenged with those novelty or there is that sort of pressure that's created. And, and I like the the idea of like preserving your sense of self, right. By creating this challenge and being able to be successful at it. 
there's something really reinforcing about that. But I like the other, on the other hand, you know, reflecting that, you know, there might be another way to try this too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is great. Thank you guys so much for sharing your wisdom and insight. And I really hope this helps answer this question for this person. So thank you again for writing in and always feel free to write us questions for us to answer and we'll do our best. Thank you so much for listening. As you can hear, parenting is not one size fits all. It's nuanced and it's complicated. So I really hope that this series where we're answering your questions really helps you to cut through some of the noise and find out what works best for you and your unique child. If you have a burning parenting question, something you're struggling to navigate, or a topic you really want us to shed light on or share research about, we want to know. Go to drsarahbrenn.com forward slash question to send in anything that you want Rebecca, Emily, and me to answer in this new series, Securely Attached Beyond the Sessions. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash question. And check back for a brand new Securely Attached next Tuesday. And until then, don't be a stranger.